0: Well, I'm so happy that people are here because we could be out playing in the sunshine, (laughs) so thank you all so much for coming. Um, So I'm going to read mostly from The Goldilocks Zone, but I'm going to read two poems from a book I have coming out in September called Echo Light, and I just got the proof of it yesterday, so I thought... I would bring it along and read a couple poems. That would also give me the opportunity to start with two super sad poems and then make it get better from there. Um, (laughs) So um, this is um, a poem called Later the Moon Died. And um, it's kind of basically the conversation I would have with a therapist if I had a therapist. Unfortunately, since I'm a poet, I can't really afford to go to therapy, but I've, I've considered it seriously. Later, the moon died. I'd like to remember it as it really happened. I'd like to remember it. I'd like to remember. It never happened. A memory, not a fact. He never tore my... He never tore. He never... He never... I can't remember. I'm losing my mind. There are discrepancies in your story. Discrepancies. A story. Just a story. Only a story. Forget about it. Forget about it. What? Now we're talking. I still remember. Let's go over this again, shall we? Do you or do you not want to see light again? Do you want to eat again? Do you want out of here? In my life, I'm only 10. Of course I do. I'm only 10. I'm 10 years old. You can't imprison me in this room the rest of my life. Pop goes the weasel. The result is sperm and egg meeting at the rusty bar for a drink. The child grows. You can't imprison me your whole life, my whole life. I can and I will. Brick by brick, layer by layer, I'll brick you in, you little whining, crying Kathy. You'll be in there with the cask forever and ever. No one will hear your cries. But you will. You'll hear me. I won't. You'll know I'm crying. You'll hear. I'll keep bricking if it takes my whole life. It's my life's work. It's called growing up. Call it any name you want. It's murder. No, murder means you kill a person. You were never a child. Not really a child. Never properly a child. Shut up. Abuses the light. You're a smudge on the landscape of perfectly formed, deliberate snowdrifts. I've created a snow angel here and here. You're outside the picture. There's nothing to forget. You, you little ten-year-old screamer. You never happened. That's why I talk to the little Kate. It's kind of sad, really. Um, while we're on that sad sad subject. Um, So while I was growing up, I would see my mother once or twice a year and we'd have these little special visits. And um, this is really a poem about one of those visits. Killing the Almost Jew. She says, you're almost not quite a Jew. I keep digging. She said, you would have been had I been Jewish. The mother must be a Jew. Your father was a neurotic, a Jew. What's your excuse, mother, I say? just dig and shut up once i don't harbor neuroses i say i strangle them with my bare hands she reaches for me hands off my sweet neck your evil neck half jew I dig till the hole is large enough to lie down let mother fill it in with a shovel till I am buried it cheers her every time killing the almost Jew she sings afterward for a second when the burial is complete I lie still underneath while the dust settles and hear her a mad scream of joy very high and clear things you do to keep your mother happy I guess there um, So this is uh, Goldilocks Zone. Uh, It's about four inventions that I consider to be important, glass, condoms, bridges, and fireworks. Um, And that kind of weaves through all of this. Um, This is actually about starting Red Hen Press, which was um, uh, a kind of random thing in the sense that um, we were figuring out as we went along. Um, We, we, thought in the beginning that all we needed to do was just know something about books and designing books, and uh, later we found out that um, we were going to need an accountant. That was very confusing. Um, the House that Jack Built. We built a house of glass in the woods. Rain came in. Rain came in through the skylight, open windows. We sealed the house. Water seeped under the foundation. We built canoes to navigate the stream from kitchen to bedroom, all the bookshelves up high. The cement floor wore away to gravel. We lived in a stream bed in a glass house until the sun came out. It became hot, humid. Orchids filled the place, their tendrils of longing everywhere. Visitors said our house was unnatural, but it seemed perfectly natural to us. Children tumbled amid orchids in summer, paddled streams in winter. Electricity not possible, but we didn't want it. Electricity would have forced us out of the glass house. We're still here in the glass and mud, the unbalanced checkbooks, poems, and silence. We hear water, breath, the house letting in light. Um, So the title poem for this book is is Goldilocks Zone, and uh, it's about um, the search for um, alien life, which is not actually the search for alien life. Um, What scientists are searching for is areas where there could be a habitable planet. And I very much like this idea because The perfect place for a habitable planet is just some place where it's not too hot and not too cold. Um, But I think that that would be a terrible life because I think that the best parts of life are when it is way too hot or way too cold, way too dangerous, way too scary. So this starts with a quote um, from Astronomy Today. One of the keys to the search for other habitable planets is the Goldilocks zone, also called the habitable zone or life zone. The Goldilocks zone is an area of space in which a planet is the right distance from its home star so that its surface is not too hot and not too cold. Tracks in the snow, blurring air, somebody's coming, you're not that somebody. The children say they come from a crazy family, they don't know the half of it. What we wanted was to find that hole in the sky, that hole that would lead through the tunnel to the cave where light was built. Fireworks, sun flares, comets, lava, intense light comes from that cave. We wanted to avoid the Goldilocks zone, everything lukewarm, where you don't know bliss when it's right in front of you from man to woman to life. You're in a hotel surfing for a good movie, The Shining comes on. You keep going in case there's something else out there in the cold ether, a musical maybe. Happiness isn't something you stumble into. It's the intersection between light and water. We've been there. Indeed, we've been there. We just didn't know it at the time. We thought we were in the Goldilocks zone. Um, so I have a couple poems here about my son. Um, I, I have a, a daughter and a son. I haven't written very much about her because she's been fairly well behaved. But fortunately, he has not. Um And this is actually not something that happened, it's maybe, maybe all the stories that his friends told me growing up. But um, one of the things that's interesting about it is that I I wrote this poem several years ago when a number of his friends were telling me about um, having sex in cars and being worried about getting pregnant when they're having sex in cars. I don't know why they told me all this. Um, And later... um, Like a year ago, my son was in a van in New Zealand and got washed down the river with a group of people sleeping in the van and had to get in and rescue everybody. So it's funny that after I wrote this poem, there was some truth in it. So you'll see that there's a van. Mother in the window, climb out of the van. Take your pants off in the rain, climb back in, circumvent reality. Your girl is spread-eagled in the yellow dome light, no condom, you unbuckle, you love her for what it's worth. The trippy music ends, her makeup slides a little, she's singing fiddle-eye-o, coming on the old banjo. I wonder why you aren't home, rain comes down, water rises from trenches by the road like Genesis, she's whistling now. Jump in before the moment slides away. The road's washed out. The van rocks like a boat. She screams, rock me baby. You don't see rain anymore. You ask yourself if a man has one home or many. You hope many. You feel the van sliding, everything's sliding. In the window, I shade my eyes. You think about my worrying. You wonder if this means you are very young. Your girl's laughing now, her face full of mascara. You feel movement. The van is definitely in motion. If you get out of the van now, you don't know where you'll be, maybe nowhere. Best not to find out. You can't see out of the van. You can't see a thing. Um, so, one more poem about him. Um, this is called Half-Written Note. In your room, a package of condoms, peach brandy, clean laundry folded, three street signs, broken camera, a pipe, photo of a girl, directions to a gas station, map of Acapulco, doorknob, Spanish guitar, two broken eggs in a cup, half-written note to me, mom took the train to see my sister, she needs... I call. You ask for directions from the train station to her place. I keep waiting for the pieces to fall into place like a sky map when you can suddenly see the stars laid out. I'd settle for one constellation, Stephen. Um, okay, so now we're going to get a little more cheerful. Um, so this poem is called Come Stalkery. Um, I did a, a lot of studying when I was reading this about uh, laws that used to be on the books but are now um, have been taken off the books and laws that are still on the books that obviously are completely obsolete. So this was part of what came out of this. It starts off with two quotes. Comstockery is the world's standing joke at the expense of the United States. Europe likes to hear such things. It confirms the deep-seated conviction of the old world that America is a provincial place, a second-rate country-town civilization after all. And that's George Bernard Shaw. Uh, and then this quote, George Bernard Shaw is an Irish smut dealer and that's Anthony Comstock. Americans fear sex, the French love sex, We're more like the English than the French. We all fear what we don't understand. The sight of the nude body, the belly, the hips, the loins, the curves, the moist underbelly of pleasure, giving and receiving. Anthony Comstock, crusader for righteousness, convinced Congress to pass the Comstock laws, denying anyone in the US the right to birth control, knowledge of birth control, to any pictures of nude people sent by US mail, including medical textbooks. If you grow poppies, their papery petals opening in your flower garden, that is legal. If you know how to make opium of these poppies, it is illegal. If you own hemp seeds to feed to your birds, that is legal. If they fall into the grass and grow, that is a crime. Anthony Comstock loved his mother, who died when he was 10, married an older tiny woman who wore only black, became the landscape. I imagine them retiring to separate bedrooms after a frigid dinner of corn, peas, turkey giblets. We're all subject to God's laws. Anthony Constock had 3,000 people in prison, died a hated man, except by one young admirer who found his work and methods exceptional, Jade Edgar Hoover. Comstock poured over thousands of pornographic photos, willing to subject himself to evil to rid the world of filth and purify mankind, a Christ-like character not appreciated in his own lifetime. Unlike Jesus, not deified since. Like Jesus, hated. My son tells me the world's all haters or players. Which are you? Comstock was a player for the Christian team. If you fail to appreciate someone purifying the world of sodomy, condom usage, oral sex, you're a hater. Some of you know how to make opium from the poppies you grow, have pictures of naked women, have used birth control and taught others to do so, have practiced sodomy. Same-sex sodomy is illegal in Kansas, Texas, and Oklahoma. Some of you are not even Christians. Some of you have medical textbooks in your libraries. Some of you have practiced oral sex, illegal in Georgia. Reach your hand into your clothes. Whatever you find there is obscene." Um, Okay. Um, This is a poem about why I moved to California. Um, I grew up in New Hampshire, and um, as soon as I was 18, I got out, and then I gradually came to California. And so maybe this is a poem about why California. And it's called Getting Laid. Black against sky, endless trees, leaves full of odor, color, brittle autumn. Pointed pines, rocks grow out of dirt, broken roads, telephone wires chop the sky. Spring, grumble of loose ice, gravel, tires screech, winter recedes, water feet. Even in spring, you hated yourself for having children. One, but then another, you wait the second coming. For 18 years, I wait in New Hampshire. The Lord does not come, only snow. I leave for California to wait out the rapture on a a beach full of beer cans, condoms, getting laid. So we were supposed to, where I grew up, we were supposed to wait for the Lord to come. And finally I decided I would wait this out someplace else. Um, Okay. This is called Christian Hookers. I know that seems oxymoronic, but... You kind of have to go there with me for a minute. And it starts with a verse from the Bible, though I bestow all my f- goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it pr- profiteth me nothing. Teetering next to the Texas long neck is a bowl of chips, old man Fish is sharing with his buddy Zone. Fish and Zone have been out of work eight months. Crawling back and forth between the skin of potatoes and bags of old rice, but tonight Fish got some money from his aunt and he's sharing it with Zone. Got a surprise for you, Fish, Zone says. Couple of hookers waiting for us at the motel. That's so, Fish says? No, but it's the thought that counts. Got the condoms though, just in case hookers drop out of the sky. It would be mighty Christian of them, Fish says. Mighty Christian, Zone agrees. Things you hope for. Um, so uh, as I said, I was studying bridges, and one of the bridges that fascinated me the most was um, there's a glass bridge hanging out over the, the Grand Canyon, and it's quite difficult to go and visit, and it's built on Native American land. So I think the rest of this is sort of explained in the poem. It's called Vegas to Skywalk. David Jin's dream come true. Asians arrive, busloads to Vegas. Arrive in heat with cameras and cash, loving the foreignness, the Americanness of the desert city without clocks. In the streets, foamy glasses of margaritas, fountains and flyers to visit showgirls, party girls, naked and sequined like your dream of a girl, if you dreamed of a girl, all plastic perfection and rhinestones. Gin's next dream: a glass bridge over the Grand Canyon. For the Wallapi, people of the tall pine, at 50% unemployment, alcoholism, obesity, failed gambling schemes, it was a good dream. Accused of desecrating the canyon, the wallapai replied that their accusers were safe in Phoenix eating tofu, watching plasma TV while they wallowed below the federal poverty line. The glass bridge hangs 4,000 feet from the river. You reach it by driving 18 miles of unpaved road. You stare down through glass at the river churning below. You wear special shoes. You are over birds. Some people are disappointed, say the prices are too high, the bridge too short, the Grand Canyon not impressive enough. They wish they'd stayed in their hotel in Vegas, watched high-def television, die-hard maybe. They say our grandparents dream in black and white, our children dream in high def, scenes last 15 seconds, bridges are bigger, scarier, our children fly from Vegas to the Grand Canyon and back, texting as they go, the words fly through air on tiny wings, land on shoulders of Japanese tourists blinking in the sun as they pile out onto the strip. Vegas showgirls greet them. The best part of America, the best part of the world. Cameras flash, the fun has just begun. All around you are huge stucco masses of hotel, water piped in from the Colorado River, draining it. There's a radical blue space where words escape to, a place where language still means something, outside Vegas entirely, but you don't know where that space is anymore, hardly anyone goes there, it's mostly empty, a place where we catch ourselves thinking, breathing, dreaming. Okay, I have um, a few more. So one of the Bible stories that I really liked a lot when I was growing up was the the story of the children of Israel going from Egypt to Canaan. It took them 40 years. And um, I could see on a map that it was a fairly short distance. And I pointed this out to my teachers, but it didn't seem to go well, that whole pointing that out to them. Um, So here we go. Fields. The children of Abraham left Egypt, crossed the Sinai Peninsula, entered Canaan after 40 years, a distance less than the stretch of miles from San Diego to Los Angeles, crossed on foot by the Jimenez family in 10 days. Papa Jimenez carried Clara on his shoulders. They sought farm work. The Israelites expected to work in the fields, were guided by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. The Jimenez family found guidance from a AAA map purchased at a Unical station near the border, a blue flashlight. They ate corn tortillas, missed pupusas and sopa. The Israelites ate manna and quail, longed for garlic and onions. The Hebrews died in Sinai. Their children entered Canaan. The Jimenez parents died in trailers by the Ventura fields. Their children went to community college, opened a bakery. The children of Israel wander between San Diego and Los Angeles. They approach Gelson's, the strawberries fresh, the meat kosher. The Jimenez family attends mass, eats blessed bread, drinks wine. Um, Let's see. I have two more poems left. this one, again, is based on one of my favorite Bible stories. More uh, sort of disturbing ones. Um, a lot of the Bible is fairly disturbing if you, if you get right down to it. But this one is about the bridegroom that uh, there's ten virgins waiting for him. And uh, five of them actually don't get to be with him at all because they didn't bring enough oil in their lamps. So I was always kind of wondering about that. What are these ten girls doing, you know? Uh, And I was also thinking that I would be one of the ones that would deliberately run out of oil so I could just wander off and find somebody else. Gender differences according to the Bible. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five were wise, five were foolish. Which kind of brings up the question, who's really wise and who's really foolish, but okay. Some ran out of lubricant. No, I mean oil. Didn't get to be one of the main virgins. Only five had enough. Lucky bridegroom lines up his virgin, sets off fireworks in the bedroom, heaven for men, women waiting eagerly with lamps for him to appear. In women's heaven, a long line of James Bonds waits until midnight for our arrival, not a virgin among them. Each of them highly skilled lovers, masseuses, chefs, dancers, kissers, bartenders, comedians, and of course, their acrobats fundamental difference between the sexes it's all right there in the Bible we require skill men are fine with the layabout when we say kiss me by God you better know how okay so I'm going to end with uh, Casanova and the Aphrodite of the modern world I like the story of Casanova very much uh, and many people have Uh, of course Casanova's name is sort of synonymous with with love um, but most of what we know about Casanova, he wrote himself. So he ended up writing the story of Casanova. So this is kind of uh, an inspiration to all of us who are writers that might it might be a good idea to write your own story. And um, I'm kind of working on that myself. Um, I I uh, was posting this video that I had... Been interviewed about the start of Red Hen Press, and I was posting it on Facebook last week. And it's st- and then I watched it, and I had forgotten what I'd said. But in in the beginning of it, I said that um, when when I was first getting started, that people were saying to me, "Look, everything you own fits in a two-seater car, and your two kids are in there, and your babysitter's in there. Everything you own is in this car, and you think that you're going to transform Los Angeles into a literary city? It means kind of a large metropolitan area." And I was just like. <laughs> I got this. That's what I said in the video. And um, that's kind of like my, I'm the panther moment. Um, (laughs) So I think that it's good to just kind of remember stories the way you want to remember them. Michele and I do it all the time. Casanova and the Aphrodite of the Modern World. Uh, At the end of his life, Prince Delini said, at 73, no longer a god in the garden or a satyr in the forest, he is a wolf at the table. So I guess he was chowing down there at the end. This window is the one he climbed out to escape his second arrest by the Inquisition. No glass, just an open space, curtain over it. There were bars. He escaped twice. Son of Italian performers, early ambition to be a priest, thrown out of seminary, decided to travel, visit all the capital cities, be expelled from them one by one. We see him lolling on beds, linen strewn, serving girl astride, dog barking down below, clothes on the mirror, smell of semen, chamber pot in the corner. We see him with ladies, maids, duchesses, hear cries of ecstasy. Casanova liked condoms made from lamb intestines or linen condoms tied off with a ribbon. Casanova fought duel after duel, carried off without a scratch, many near misses at the altar. Casanova's coach always just in time. Last 14 years of his life, corner of Bohemia, Chateau Dux, Casanova worked as a librarian, wrote his memoirs, spooled out his exploits. The twins who seduced him, Nin, Colette, Casanova captured something. Reveal what you wish, it's your story. Tell the story they want to hear, story of desire, story of passion. I'm starting my diary. I am the greatest lover of the 21st century. Men who sleep with me never recover, nor do women. They are all of them mad. I am Aphrodite of the modern world. Music precedes me, stories follow me. Give me 14 years at the Chateau Ducks. My name will be synonymous with pleasure. questions? I have a question.
1: Okay. <laughs> so, i actually wanted to ask you this for a, a long time. Okay. So, so we
0: know that you're the managing editor for Red Hand Press, so you're a publisher, so there's a, a certain mindset that comes with that, and so then you have a mindset of being a poet. Do you think, oh, I have to, do you write poems influenced with a publisher's mind? Oh, I, I, I think that part of the influence is that I read a lot of poetry and so I have a sense of like and I go to a lot of poetry readings um, so I have I definitely have a sense of, of what kind of po poems kind of bore me and um, what kind of poems feel like they're well crafted but aren't saying anything. So I think that that if you work as an editor uh, I was talking with Jill Bieloski about this so she's the editor at, at Norton of their poetry and she also is a writer and she was saying that you feel all those books that you've read that you didn't want to have to read like crowding at you when you write and, and I, maybe that's a good thing because I, I definitely think that whatever you write should have a kind of a impact but I definitely think that it I mean like people talk about the editor sitting on your shoulder but if you're already an editor the editor is like just <laughs> clamoring all over your shoulders you know um, and it won't shut up so yeah I think it, I think it makes it uh, harder to just kind of let go and write whatever you might want to which it seems like that's what I did in the beginning but so is it easy for you to say oh I'm being the poet now or? Yeah, no, I would say it's harder to shift because it's just like I, I, that editor is is alive and well and wants to talk with me while I'm writing. And I, I think a- ideally, actually, when you're, especially if you're doing a first or second draft, that, that y- you should be writing with your heart or your stomach, not necessarily having that editor talk to you all the time, but... Yeah.
1: So you have the you have the two books and you say that one's funny and one's sad. Are they in conversation with each other though at all? Or?
0: Um no, that's a good question. So the the book that's coming out this fall, Echo Light, that I read the first two poems from that were sad. Um, you know, I had wrote that first over a long period of time, and um, and then I just wanted to change um, gears. And I think I'd mentioned to you that I was really into Charles Harper Webb, and I wanted to go in that direction. And so I did this sort of project book, The Goldilocks Zone, which was a lot of fun. And I think that um, I think it's a good thing to. Esp- I mean, like, I think I've written a lot of sad poems and a lot of, like, uh, beaten-up girl poems. And and as an editor, uh, I, of course, like books about uh, children and people that are being badly treated. And um, Red Hen's just full of that kind of stuff. Um, Well, come on. I mean, I read, published your book and, you know... No, just kidding. Um, So... (laughs) so I get attracted to that and so it was really great for me to change gears and do the Goldilocks Zone so I don't know I mean I think there's a, a bit of a conversation because I think Goldilocks Zone is sort of what happens if you start letting go of a story because I think that you can just decide to inhabit a story. And so like the story that I had carried forward for a long time was this story of having had this horrific childhood and then that making me this, this fighter person. But what if you weren't fighting all the time? What if you were just enjoying yourself? I mean, it's hard to imagine, but that's what I tried to imagine with the Goldilocks Zone, you know, that idea. Do you have one
1: that's particularly your favorite
0: oh, in here? Oh, in terms of poems? Um, I think that the one one that I read the um, House that Jack built I kind of like that because it it does feel like it starts in this place where the house is underwater and um, and then it comes out that like we like that it's wet here and we like that there's plants growing in the house and so yeah I kind of like that because I think in terms of a life or first of all in terms of the arc of the book um, but I also just think in terms of a life or starting a press that there was this part with, with Red Hen that was just like why are we even doing this no one cares and everything and then there's this part where you get beyond that story and you just start thinking this is cool. This is, yeah, we're having fun, you know, playing the sandbox here, and uh, yeah. So, I don't know, it felt like that was a, the, the arc I wanted to stay with or something.
1: Do you ever, I guess I was interested about how people
0: decide the poems in their poetry collection. Do you ever think, oh, I should have added that one more. I should have taken out this one sort of ruining the arc of the story, or, or, or what I'm, I'm trying to feel. Do you ever do that? Yeah, I mean, I actually think the whole decision of, first of all, which ones will go in a collection and then what order they're going to be in I think that's very very difficult and that's why most people work with a couple outside editors when they're doing that because when you're in the mess of it yourself I think it's hard to see what's working and like I know Kim worked with Terry Wolverton who you are mentioning earlier and Terry has quite an eye for that and Terry's worked with us on some projects and so yeah I mean in both of these books the editor chopped some out and changed around the order quite a bit and there's still uh, like when I was looking through the Echo Light book there's also one there's two more super sad poems that I wrote that I was thinking why didn't those end up in there (laughs) so I did kind of think that I might have written those sad poems too late or maybe they were too sad and so they didn't end up in there but uh. well as an editor when you got the notes back from your editor did the editor come out Uh, from you and just like, hey, wait a minute, editor, I don't agree
1: with your because then I'm sure you
0: look at the book with an editorial eye. Right,
1: right. So did you lock horns with your
0: editor? Well, so that's a great question. So the first editor was Hilda Ross, and Hilda Ross was the editor of Prairie Schooner for a long time, and I've known her for a long time, and I have huge respect for her. So I basically think she's an editorial genius. I felt so lucky to be working for her. And so she gave me her notes, and somebody else gave me their notes anonymously who worked for the University of New Mexico, and their their notes agreed disagreed with each other considerably. And so so I just kind of tried to go with whatever resonated for me and like that, but I could tell what was Hilda, and I was thinking, well, Hilda's a genius, so I was trying to kind of go along with her. And and whenever she said something that I didn't understand, I would think, well, let me think about it for a few weeks, and then it will come to me. And basically, I worked with her notes for almost a year, so I, I gave myself a year to edit it. So, so that was kind of a good experience. And then the second book came along, and so that that editor, um, she's edited like, I don't know, like 15 or 20 books. Okay. So far as I'm concerned, she just got started. Right. And so, um, so she gives me her editorial feedback. And of course, I'm already thinking like, oh my God, I know so much more than this person. I can't even believe I'm listening to her. And so that was one thing. The other thing, this is really interesting, was she wanted me to come to her house. Like I've never, I still have never met her, but she wanted me to come to her house and stay with her for three days. And we would do the editing in person. And that was when I first realized that, like, as far as I was concerned, editing is kind of like sex or masturbating or something. It's something you're supposed to do by yourself, right? (laughs) And so the idea of doing it with another person was like, no, this is not working for me at all. Like, I'm used to, like, I give people editorial feedback. I expect them to look at it by themselves. And so the idea of sitting down with someone I didn't know and doing this, I suddenly realized, like, I can't, I can't, like, I can't do that. That's a private act. I can't do this in the presence of another person. So then I had to tell her, like, okay, we're going to have to do this, like, on the phone or email or whatever because I can't come to your house. And um, so she kind of went along with that, although she was quite shocked. And um, then she started giving me her editorial feedback. And I would say, oh, I just... I think she's wrong i think she's wrong because i i had in my head that i knew more than she did but then i had to just say okay she loves this book she's so much in love with this and she really wants to publish it so i'm going to try to go along with as much as i can so a couple things i pushed back really gently but like i really tried to go along with stuff and some of her editorial comments didn't really matter anyway it was like oh let's switch this around or whatever and I would say that's, and then whenever she gave something that didn't matter I would go along with it and say that's such a good change, thank you so much, that's so important you know, so I would try to give her positive feedback, you know um, so it was it was just weird, it was very different and I could see that um, like I remembered when uh, there was an early Red Hen book that we were publishing by Judy Gron, and I was really worried that Judy Gron, who's this very well-known poet, would think, really, Kate Gale was reading me when she was in college, like, this is a kid. And so Terry ended up doing that for me because they're contemporaries, you know? So I remembered having that awareness when I was younger as an editor um, that, um, that some people you know might not have enough respect for me yet but now i mean i know i still look 20 but like now that i am actually super old in spite of looking 20 i feel like i just like have to have my editorial chops going but yeah it was a very different experience being edited yeah wow uh, the dirt behind the poetry collection exactly (laughs) sorry if that was too much information (laughs) okay okay any other final questions